0: Hello and welcome to the Trainer Tools podcast. Sorry this one is a bit late. They are supposed to be released at the end of each month, at least that's the aspiration. But as I warned you at the beginning of the year, or what at the end of last year, I can't remember, they would become increasingly haphazard as pressure of work meant that I had to give these podcasts lower priority. So sorry about that. But in addition to being a bit crap on release dates, I'm also going to be doubly crap on new material because we're going to take a bit of a hiatus over the summer. So over that time I may release some golden oldies which is what I'm doing today, which I'll explain in a second, Or made do something completely different. I haven't decided yet. It all rather depends on how energised I feel or how bored I get over the summer holidays. So this one that I'm releasing, or re-releasing today, was actually the second podcast we ever recorded. And it's an interview with me and a guy called Paul Levy, and it's called The Collusion of Mediocrity. The reason I came up with this idea of Essentials podcasts is I wanted to highlight some of the podcasts because they'd had a particularly strong impact on me. I'd learned a lot from them, or that I, I felt they'd really helped me take a, a, a big step forward in my learning and development skills. And this was one of the very first ones, and it's something that I still use quite a lot. There's only a second podcast in the Trainer Tools series, so obviously my interview style is different. Um, I think worse. I think quite crap. So it is a nice little lesson in humility. So without any further introductory chit-chat, something else that I've actually cut out of later podcasts, here's the inclusion of mediocrity from the Essentials Mix release. I'm here with Paul Levy. Hi,
1: Paul. How are you? Hi, good.
0: Now, I don't know what you're going to talk to us about today. um, So do you want to explain that?
1: Yeah, I think what I wanted to share was something I think all people working in learning and development will have experienced. um, and, And it addresses a frustration that I think both clients and facilitators, trainers could actually overcome if they took this on board. And I'm going to talk a little bit and demonstrate a bit something I'm calling the collusion of mediocrity and the particular technique is breaking collusion.
0: Okay, well that's, that sounds absolutely fascinating and I have no idea what it is. So do you want to just talk through the structure of of what you're going to talk about?
1: Yeah, well I think it will begin with my own midlife crisis and then having shared this with a bunch of other trainers uh, a similar kind of I call it midlife crisis being slightly tongue in cheek. Um and it's where a trainer is sitting at the end of the day Uh, with a bunch of feedback sheets, which are quite often in the industry known as happy sheets, often administered um, after some motivating exercise at the end of the day. Um, And what they often find is there's a whole load of positive feedback from almost everybody. But what the intuition of the trainer is, is that the people in the room haven't really developed themselves in any significant way or taken any real risks or moved their behavior forward. And that can get confirmed when you bump into some of those people a year later and discover they haven't used any of the training at all. And and I've kind of got a, an idea about why that is and what you can do about it.
0: Well, I can certainly empathise with all of that. Partly, part of the midlife crisis bit. I'm quite happy to empathise on that yeah. part. We can bond. We can bond over that. <laughs> but also, um I've again sat at the end of the day and thought, yeah this isn't really very helpful. It just feels like a tick box exercise.
1: Yeah, I think it comes down to. I mean, something's been called the comfort zone, and and sometimes the almost. It feels a bit like a conflict of interest that. The trainer is sometimes wanting to do a good job, but also you know not be thrown out. But they might have to risk being thrown out because they're going to have to take those learners into the zone of discomfort, where for periods of time, they may actually be spitting at the trainer or the developer because they're actually taking them where they really need to go rather than, as I call it, colluding with mediocrity.
0: For me, this was the key point of the podcast. It's very much about having that mental switch as a facilitator in a training room My job is not there to court Happy sheet success. My job is to make quite skilled judgments about things I need to challenge, things I don't need to challenge, places I need to go and need to push people, despite that making me potentially unpopular. And having that mental mindset of wanting to go there and wanting to push people wanting to challenge them rather than wanting to accumulate happy faces for me was a hugely motivating and inspiring switch that made my job a lot more interesting and a lot more challenging anyway back to 2015 me so how are you going to um how are you going to structure the next 15 20 minutes
1: well the the collision that I've kind of been writing about for quite a few years is it's quite a challenging model, and it's got four levels. So I thought I could run you through four, the four levels with examples and then end with how do you actually collusion break. Um, so what I'm talking about right from the start is the collusion of mediocrity is where in the room and there's an almost unspoken agreement that the people in the room are not going to be challenged particularly. We're not going to go into the zone of discomfort, and the result of that usually is everyone breathes a sigh of relief and praises the trainer at the end of the day.
0: Okay, I absolutely love the phrase "collusion of mediocrity." I think that's a brilliant phrase. Yeah. So you're going to take us through these four steps, and then at the end, um, conclude.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, and you're over in Spain, I believe, and I'm over here in Brighton. And. Um, perhaps one of the places to start is why you know british food is kind of vilified uh, around the world compared to you know a lot of other food i'm not talking that all that food is bad but but one of the suggestions is that we often in in our country have a culture of what we call non-complaining you know don't spoil the meal when people are out the waiter comes over in the uk and tends to say is everything okay seeking so a yes whereas i've noticed in europe and over in the us they tend to um, ask how is the meal giving you an opportunity to say well it's okay or it isn't and the problem of of, not actually calling things by their real name and not risking the uncomfortable conversation is that then people can't learn. And as a result of that, you end up with mediocrity. The deal is a kind of deal with the devil. To be in the comfort zone, everything is fine, everything is safe, everything is easy, but what we miss is the real potential because that sits in the zone of discomfort. And so level one of my collusion model, the collusion of mediocrity, is where we actually have what I call fake niceness. Um, And so people are in a room. We've got um, the notion of never really taking people and people not taking risks and the trainer not being the representative through their processes of the places where people fear to go, don't necessarily want to go. But they absolutely, in terms of realising their potential and learning, they're the places they need to go. So can you give us an example of what that might look like? Yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, part of my midlife crisis was running years back some presentation skills courses in a venue in Brighton called Comedia. It was a lovely theatre-based venue. I know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've so, been there. Yeah, yeah so I've we, seen comedy, comedy shows there. I think. So, so where you saw the comedy shows, we would have people, and they were up for this. They said, you know, standing up on the stage where the comedians would be performing that night, you know, under lights, uh, learning to present. And um, When we set at the beginning, what are your aims? Quite a few people said what their aims would be would be to be able to speak confidently with a script up on the stage. What I became very aware of is several of those people had already done that in their lives before, and they were sort of faking. What they really didn't want to do was learn how to stand on the stage and improvise without a script. And the risk that I would take as a trainer for them to actually, at the end of the day, go, that was a bloody difficult but useful day, uh, would be to actually challenge them and call them on the fake goal that they set, the fake nice goal, where they were hoping just to repeat learning um, and actually take them into the zone of discomfort. And I often did that uh, later in my training life. And what you'd find is people would write bad feedback about you in the short term, but often contact you later and go, I just want to let you know, I thought that was a really difficult workshop and I wrote bad things on the day, but this has changed my life Uh, the risk for the trainer therefore is that they don't get such nice happy sheets they get unhappy sheets but the unhappiness is a sign that real honesty is taking place and real learning is happening but the trainer has to risk it by breaking collusion level one which i call fake niceness and it does involve having a role of sometimes naming that part of someone's learning journey up ahead that they fear to name for themselves
0: so how do you do that how do you break that collusion
1: So, I mean, one of the easiest ways has been to actually repeat exactly what we're doing now, to introduce the notion of the collusion of mediocrity at the start. People often love that. They recognize it. And then it can become a reference point throughout the training. So we can already get people then saying, as part of the kind of ground rules, please say if you think anyone's collusion breaking. The other other bits that you have to do is just act on your intuitions. I think what happens is trainers when they're really doing this start to tune into the group and and skilled trainers that we're not here to deliberately upset people for its own sake the the method here is to help people learn and we're not looking for people to break down for its own sake but bre- kind of breakdown may happen where people have to take a few steps back so at different times during the day the 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 trainer has to check in do an honesty check with the people in the room has to be able to refer to the idea there might be collusion in the room and occasionally has to call people on whether they are you know playing a little bit of a fake game here now everybody still has to have the right to say i don't want to go further this is as far as i feel comfortable to go but at least you've named it
0: right yeah it will give you that kind of non-emotional objective language so you can describe it
1: yeah, so in the presentation skills course, that was about people going into, and so many people going into the off-script improvisational place of discomfort. They, the joke was, you know, in the end when we did that, several of those people ended up signing up on the uh, stand-up comedy course at Comedia, and they really slayed their ghost of presentation that way.
0: I didn't know they did a stand-up comedy course there. That's yeah, interesting.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a big thing. And of course, that is the real zone of discomfort, isn't it? Doing it for real.
0: God, yeah, yeah. That's one of my worst nightmares, that idea. Yeah. So that's the collusion of niceness, and that's the lowest level of your model, your four-step model.
1: Yeah, so level one is calling things by their real name. So also in development, if you're a consultant, again, we've got this kind of almost conflict of interest that sometimes senior managers will get you in to facilitate an away day where they're saying, look, we want to come up with a strategy. Um, And what they're actually hoping you're going to do is collude with their mediocrity. Whereas what you might be noticing as the very conscious facilitator in the room is what's, say, causing problems in the business is the fact that the senior management team are being dysfunctional. Um, It could be they're not listening to each other. It could actually be that they're setting their own goals too low. And you need to name that. Um, And that's going to make you not the most popular person if you start calling people on, again, what I call their mediocrity. Where mediocrity is simply somewhere less that you define you could be as an individual. Um, And and so it works as much in consultancy as it works in facilitation. I call breaking collusion level one, calling something by its real name. A kind of exorcism, really.
0: Mediocrity is kind of a charged term, isn't it? It does imply criticism. A, you, you must get some kind of pushback and negative response to that.
1: It's a bit, as a, it's a bit of a shit sturry term. But I, I think my belief is there's so much collusion going on that it's good to provoke. And 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 actually, I found most people that you know they'll challenge that phrase and say, well, what do you mean by mediocrity? And all I mean by, it, and this kind of rescues it a little bit, is mediocrity is a state that is less and potential and it can only be defined honestly by the people in that situation so i'm not telling people they're mediocre they're telling themselves when they're honest
0: okay so it sits between um any th- less than potential and presumably better than crap
1: yeah and if you're a trainer and a bunch of people have booked you say for a stress management course because everyone's stressed for example you know it's almost a, isn't it a moral duty to help those people learn as much as possible uh, rather than play it safe
0: yeah I would agree. You do, I mean, like you say, you do end up with that kind of uh, conflict of interest in the sense that, you know, shooting the messenger, being the person who, who is shit stirring, to use your phrase, yeah. is the person who isn't necessarily
1: going to get the best feedback. Yeah. And I think what you have to do. Is Although I think to- that's sorry. a fault. I do think, yeah.
0: sorry, I was going to say, I think, that, I think that's a fault of the happy sheet system. Yeah. I think the happy sheet system is essentially flawed.
1: Yeah, so I've abandoned Happy Sheets, and we just have feedback ongoing. Once you've broken a collusion, it can come in whenever it needs to come in. Some people need to write to you two weeks later and go, I'm still not sure I like this stuff, and someone bumps into you a year later and just they want to let you know it's really transformed. The problem with Happy Sheets is that they tend to be collusive.
0: Yeah, no, they absolutely do. I completely agree with you. I haven't quite worked out what the alternative is yet, yeah. but I've I've definitely got this nagging doubt that Happy Sheets hold us back.
1: Yeah. So what the trainer does is they sort of probably abandon that and go for authentic conversation throughout the process. They make sure they get agreement from the person that's um, booking them in the first place that this really can be a non-collusive sort of day. You might introduce the concept. And then throughout the day, you use a bunch of techniques that I think are just part of good practice. You check in with people, you challenge people, you check assumptions, you revisit the goals and see that they still make sense. Um, And you don't try and um, I, I call it facipulate the day manipulative facilitation where you try and end on an artificial high just to get the happy sheets you know with higher scores you
0: you like inventing words and phrases don't you
1: oh god yeah I really do and I yeah. think it's been part of the collusion breaking stuff was was my realising that there's a thin line between bullshit and new language but without new language we just keep re- recycling the same old stuff
0: I think it's worth the risk I yeah. think it's worth the, worth the risk of it being bullshit because inventing yeah. new language is such fun
1: yeah Glad to
0: hear that. I invented the word crapophobic, which was uh, a fear of being crap. That's
1: well, well, my favourite one. I think crapophobic is a brilliant collusion breaking term. If you introduce that in a workshop and ask, is anyone here being crappophobic and a few hands went up, we're, we're already getting into that lovely zone of discomfort where we can talk for real.
0: Yeah, I must use it in a training course. I haven't done that yet. Yeah. Hello, it's me from the future again. I just wanted to butt in at this point and just say that's level one that Paul calls fake niceness. I actually changed the name of the different levels because I didn't particularly like the language that Paul was using to describe them. Fake niceness being level one, level two was even when you call it by the real name. I changed the name of these and I wrote about this and you can see the link to my article on it in the trainer-tools.com website. But I called level one say, the collusion by not saying what we should be saying. Level two plan, collusion by not identifying and planning the right activities three do the collusion by not delivering on the plan and four i called it keep doing which is a collusion by not keeping going and instead of just relaxing back into the way things were those are the levels as i named them which i think is better quite frankly sorry paul but i think great model nomenclature i'm challenging it What, um, so that's level one. So if we yeah. build on that, where where will we go next? Where's level two? What so this might,
1: it might sound a bit hopeless, but um, level two is that even when you've started to call something by its real name, so somebody may actually start to set some goals about this is where I really need to be. I really need to be learning to stand on a stage without a script. Or it could be that the company goes, look, we are a terrible environmental performer and we really need to get this sorted out level 2 is simply uh, what i call you then dilute it and then rename the diluted version as transformation so that's when the company that you know has admitted it needs to do a transformational environmental program just puts a few recycling bins out and posters up and but you know tells the world it's a major success story even as they're say, the biggest river polluter in the area um, similarly you know diluters are the people who say they need to give up smoking and just buy the video about it it's the the people who dumb down what the change ought to be and then try and get everyone to collude and so that often happens on training and development where somebody will say what their aim is only hit a very small part of it and everyone will say they did amazingly well now that's fine if they genuinely are going as far as they can but if we're all colluding often it's simply that someone yet again has pulled back from the threshold of real change sometimes because they're frightened um, and sometimes because they're lazy and sometimes because you know, they just don't want to go into the zone of discomfort for various reasons. There can be all kinds of agendas around it. So level two is when the thing gets diluted. And again, there's an opportunity for the facilitator, the trainer, and everybody in the room to collude around doing 10% of what the 100% could have been. So level one, we've named it. Level two, as we start going into action, we before we do, we dilute it down and pretend that 10% is excellence.
0: Right. I mean, this is extremely common, isn't it? Whereby you have that interesting conversation, you feel you've made a breakthrough and then nothing really happens. Yeah. This- and I suppose as a, as a trainer as well, we have to be quite careful that we distinguish between somebody actually making a genuine effort and moving forward, but yeah. still falling short and somebody shying away from the, the challenge that they'd otherwise written, uh, signed up for.
1: Yeah, and the aim, the aim isn't to clumsily curse people or bully them. The aim is simply to try always to get that authentic naming in level one, so that we can really make sure that level two doesn't happen. Of course, what you can do is you can do a bit like level one, checking in with people's assumptions, checking in with third-party opinions, that is this really as good as we can be? Um, you can just try and encourage you know, that we don't dilute as much as possible. Sometimes the trainer is simply going to have to name it, though, again, we are capable of more than we're actually saying. Or, I call Anchoring as a technique that if you can get real goals, say at nine o'clock in the morning, and you notice diluting has happened by lunchtime, if you can pull out the flip chart, a point to where everyone's goals were, you become the anchor. You become the kind of yeah, you you whistle blow the fact that we've started to dilute.
0: Again, can you give any sort of example?
1: Yes, yeah, so I've got. A, I, I would say, I mean, the one I mentioned around environment because I was particularly a, a, around that that particular one is that that we ran a workshop and in we did break the collusion level one there was suddenly some really interesting data around but when we actually got to what is achievable these the diluting things that were going on was this is going to take far longer than it could so they were trying to stretch the deadline to slow it down Um, somebody else was trying to say uh, we need other people in the room Um, and actually the people in the room were the real decision makers and could have just enacted it straight away. And the third one was that the original stretch goals um, were not so stretchy by lunchtime. And I questioned, why, why are you now aiming for 60% when this morning you said that 100% was where you needed to be? And I just challenged it and questioned it.
0: Okay, so level one is about really calling things as they are, being quite clear about what we want. Yeah. And then level two is about fighting the inevitable dilution, yeah. the ride, ride, riding back, lowering expectations and just ensuring that action matches the initial rhetoric. Yeah. So where do we go next? What's level three?
1: Well, interestingly, to, I'm bringing you up, slap, slap bang up to date. In this model, what I'm going to say is level three. Quite often you'll see me also writing as level two because I think these two flip around a bit. But level three I call fake revelation. Um, And sometimes what happens is you, you do fake revelation and then you dilute, but sometimes the other way around. Fake revelation is when you name it and then you park it instead of acting on it. And you pretend that the naming of it was so powerful and amazing that that was the transformation. Um, And so this is when, you know, it it used to be in the comedy show Yes Minister, where I think it was Sir Humphrey, the the civil servant, that used to say, if you want to stop a minister doing anything, what you need to do is agree with whatever they propose and then try and commission a five-year university feasibility study, because by the time it's reported, the uh, minister will have gone, you know, someone will have replaced them. So fake revelation is where you absolutely name something truthfully and you haven't diluted it at all. It's absolutely clear. The actions are clear. But what that happens is that all ends up on flip charts. That all ends up in written-down action plans or reports. and But, but it, the action doesn't get actioned. Um, so it's a kind of fake revelation because you've revealed it. It can be extremely powerful. You can walk away with people saying they've learned all sorts of stuff but a bit like I was saying with my midlife crisis uh, back at mon- on Monday morning, and certainly six months later, little or no action has taken been taken. And when diluting happens, what happens is a few token actions have uh, happened, um, but what has actually happened is um, it's all been relabeled up as, look at the amazing stuff we did, but actually we've hardly done anything at all.
0: Okay, so the difference between this and two is that the, the ambition, at least the spoused ambition, is still there. Yeah but nothing's actually happening.
1: No, and so I realised, going back into midlife crisis again, but it was, I could walk away having facilitated an away day where we broke collusion. By the end of the day, that team, that group, absolutely had a clear diagnosis of where they were, an absolutely clear shared conversation around what they felt needed to be done Uncomfortable conversations had happened. They may have even commissioned some research. They had data to back up what they needed to do. But something kicks in to actually stop the action. It can get diluted over time or it gets parked in, you know, we need to think about it more. We need to talk about it more. We need to get someone else's view on this. And six months later, they haven't quite done it. And it's your friend who again might be um, a perennial smoker, an internet addict, or a gambling addict who says, "Look, I know I should give this up. It's terrible. It's killing me." And you know that couldn't be more true. Um, and four months later, they're still smoking.
0: Again, have you got any kind of example of where this has happened on your courses?
1: So, I, I think particularly around that one. And you know, this is also the problem sometimes of what I call one-hit learning and development. So, and I've made sure that you know I try not to do that now, which is where you're in. And you've piloted a group of people towards an action plan. So, uh, and actually, you know, at the presentation skills, one, if we go back to that, there's a bunch of people saying, right, I really know what I need to do now. I absolutely have to practice being an off-the-cuff speaker. I've got to do it within the next couple of months or this course is going to fade away. Um, and they say it, and to, because we've not then actually anchored that in action, and that's the solution to this level, which is you actually have to get commitment to it and um, and that commitment has got to in classic project management terms have who's going to hold you to account for it when are you going to have it done by you know what's going to happen if you don't do it um, and ensuring it doesn't get diluted what's the real goals here what are the visions you know when are you going to reflect on this um, and so what happens is everybody writes amazing feedback saying that was the best day i've ever had that was a transformational day of presentation skills we practiced it we've done it in the learning environment Back at Monday morning, you know, and then certainly when i had done follow up feedback three months later, I discovered that none of them are any better as presenters. This is a bit like my Gerald Rat at the moment in a way. But it was earlier on in my career when I realised I was getting amazing feedback, but actually it was not. It wasn't surviving beyond those feedback sheets.
0: It was people liking you.
1: They like you. People and,
0: liking the day.
1: Yeah, they they like you, but also. I mean, the mischievous ones are absolutely going through the ritual saying, if I name this as transformation, then I won't actually have to act on it. The less mischievous ones actually go away with good intention, but without it being backed up and supported with, you know, com- you know it's known in learning, you need to have proper follow up. Uh, what happens is it just starts to, you know, um, die literally on Monday morning.
0: Okay, I think I understand better the difference between those stages and why you put them into this order. Yeah. Because as I understand it, getting from, if you like, 0 to 1 is actually calling things as they are, naming them, being very clear and quite courageous yeah. in recognising. Turning that into stage 2 is about making sure the, the, the actions you aspire to achieve match that rhetoric. Yeah. And action 3 is actually making sure those actions happen.
1: Yeah, and quite often in a collusion of mediocrity, the only person in the room who's calling those is the facilitator or trainer, and so they can become a bit like the Grim Reaper or the Exorcist.
0: Um, I have a question about how well this can go down or how badly this could go down, but I'm going to wait until after yeah.
1: done level four, sure, which
0: I'm now eagerly anticipating.
1: Yeah. Well, before I get even more fatalistic on level four, I mean, I did mention also the thing about collusion that, that strikes me is that what we're talking here at the moment is all the kind of suppressed darkness but it's not only about that it's also about all the positivity that when people collude they don't dare to dream what they're capable of they don't tend to scream with delight everything's kept at a kind of safe minimum so we also don't actually dream the very best that we can be so it sounds like it, it releases all the suppressed kind of you know problems that we've got that we have, we're not working on and the things we're not saying but equally and particularly i'd say in kind of western culture and some countries it, it's more pronounced than others is we don't dare to be brilliant let alone don't dare to be truly naming what's not working as well and then when you get to level four level four i call reverting and fading
0: and, can I just ask you could yeah. I just ask you on what you just said yeah, yeah. why do you think that is what well, what do you think stopping us having that courage to be brilliant aspire to greatness or
1: be more ambitious you know i i I don't know the answer to this other than I had lots and lots of stories told to me in some of these workshops of i mean dare I say a British or an English way of being brought up where people's parents brought them up to here were some of the terms you know don't blow your own trumpet don't show off, uh, and and parents that try to lower their children's expectations in what they thought was a hard world so they didn't get disappointed. Um, And then various people who, you know, when they did dare to dream, found themselves in collusions of mediocrity, um, and then they get slapped down by cultures saying, you know, it's not befitting behavior to be shaking your fist with joy. You know, we don't do that around here. So I think hierarchy is norm collusion, Because, you know, hierarchies and repetitive uh, organisations that are trying to standardise processes don't want maverick behaviour. They don't want too much individuality. And in professional cultures, you know, laughter and tears and joy are seen as things you do at the party. You know, when you socialise, they're not part of professional processes. And it means, therefore, we suppress most of our humanity.
0: I mean, you, you appear to be suggesting that it's kind of culturally embedded in British culture. But I would suggest that it's more common than that. I mean, certainly in American culture, where people are more encouraged to be more believe in themselves and strive for greatness, I would say that the same things that you're calling out now still exist. I mean, it was always and it's still yeah. certainly a very hierarchical yeah. organi- Organizations in the U.S. are still very hierarchical.
1: Yeah, I think it's always dangerous dangerous to be you know trying to generalize here. But I always jokingly talk about the fact that uh, you know when you go to the U.S. Um, and you're in restaurants, one of the things that you can do is people send food back all the time and people would suggest that service is better. But over in the US, they've got... Programs like the Jerry Springer Show, where somebody will announce live on telly to a studio audience that their wife, uh, or no, will discover that their wife was actually a guy, you know, and they didn't know for 20 years. And it seems that, you know, at least at a general level, there's more collusion within family life in the US, uh, but far less collusion in business life. If you, as an English person, sit um, and see an Italian family in London at a table, to a lot of English people, it looks like they're having a huge argument, similar with Spanish families. And they're not, they're just deciding who's having tea and coffee. It seems that in a lot of those families, there's not much collusion in family life. And yet what I've heard, particularly in education, and I discovered this in Slovenia, where I was giving a, a guest talk uh, to some students. And after my 40 minutes, I asked, are there any questions? There were no questions at all. And so I thought, oh, this has been a disastrous talk. And then afterwards, I went up to the, the professor that was hosting me and said, no one asked any questions. And he said, they loved your talk and a few were milling around in the corner. And then they asked me the questions over coffee, because apparently in that culture, there's an implied criticism that the lecturer hasn't covered all the material um, if you ask questions. So there's this sort of suppression going on in education. Just in in Britain, I think we've got collusion at most levels. I think it, partly it's endemic in family life. It's certainly there in our restaurants. People don't dare to complain. I mean, it's, there are a lot of people that have traveled now. It's not like that. But we seem to have, have quite a lot of collusion in organizational, personal and family life.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's more common than just the British culture is what I was yeah. um it was the point I was making. Yeah. I think I've seen what you're what you're describing I I recognise from many different cultures that I've worked in.
1: Yeah. I think it manifests differently in different cultures, that's what I'm saying. But it but you will find collusion in one form or another in parts of the human condition wherever it is.
0: I think there's something sort of people recognise that kind of daring to dream, daring to aspire for greatness and being vocal about that as quite a naive and unrealistic thing which i think business culture in general shies away from that it's very much about logic achievability objectives goals measurability yeah and everything we're talking about is none of those things
1: yeah and, and i'm certainly not an insane um you know advocate of excellence all the time and what i'm suggesting is there will be very good reasons at certain times in people's lives where they don't want to go somewhere uh, it can be much more powerful in organizational life to name that honestly and say we've decided to stay at level one uh, you know we're not going to talk about that and the, the but we know it's there, and these are the reasons why and I've got a general rule of what I call collusion breaking, which is if the damage done in the short term is going to be greater than the benefit gained, then Be conscious, but you may choose to stay colluding in in terms of, say, your five-year-old son or daughter shows you their uh, first ever painting. You're not necessarily going to say, well, that was a load of old crap. Don't be an artist. You know, There's something about the human condition that we strive and that we are mediocre. And you can even say it's beautiful as you see a a child trying to climb a little climbing frame and struggling a little bit. We're here to learn, but there can be so much collusion that when we don't actually name any of it, it's like a kind of sludge that we can't get through.
0: So, some conscious collusion is perfectly acceptable. I think
1: when it, and, and it's Potentially. Skillful, and, and skillful and important, but, but that's a very different form then of colluding uh, because it's skillful and conscious to all this kind of subconscious, suppressed stuff that I'm talking about.
0: Okay, well, I interrupted you before. You were going on to talk about Level 4.
1: Yeah, so Level 4 is, oh, God, it's reverting and fading. It's that we actually do name it, and it's not diluted, and it's not parked in reports and you know naming it and stuff, and we do actually anchor it in real objectives and deadlines and people commit and so on. But, you know, after a while, we pick up those cigarettes and start smoking again. After a while, that big change program reverts and fades back to its original state. And the statistics aren't good around that. You know, there's a load of evidence around about how people's learning states tend to revert to original state and how I think it was a regular AT Kearney uh, study in the US that 70% of change programs tended to not reach their objectives and often reverted back to original state. So, that, you know, the record's not good. Reverting is when the thing goes back to the way it was over time helped by diluting and fading is probably similar it's where the the monday morning buzz by the friday afternoon you know that buzz has faded away and people have gone you know here we are again so how's how's that avoided Uh, so i'm 48 and i think it's almost impossible to avoid it Um, it's certainly as a as a change agent you're not working in there you're not supposed to be working in there you have to leave organizations to their own state And quite often, that state is collusive. So any small part of it that's trying to bring about change will tend to revert and fade back to the way it was. It tends to succeed better if you've contracted the potential really clearly at the beginning. So if we've got senior managers going, I'm really up for this. I know what we mean. So you've broken at level one. And there's already pre-given resources and permission for where this might go. It's less likely to revert and fade. But of, the obvious ones are anywhere along a line from formal to informal, where at the informal level, it's about empowerment. It's about people having space, resources, uh, you know, and, and, and trust and openness. And these are sometimes being called these days conscious businesses. And it's about learning environments that are very, very honest and open. In my view, non-collusive. At the formal end, you have to put consequences in place. You know, if somebody says they'll do something and they don't, and it reverts and fades back, what are the consequences of not doing that? I've heard of one company where what they do is when they do their action planning, they have the traditional project planning chart with the tasks, you know, and the deadlines, and then they have two columns at the end called sign up and sign off. And people sign literally, you know, committing to actions and those signatures are part of the disciplinary process of the organization. So we're no longer in, as some public sector and private sector organisations have got, where there are no consequences to not replying to emails, no consequences to not showing up at meetings, and in a lot of cases, very, very little consequence to not making good what you said you do. So you have to kind of hold yourself to account Some in learning and development, that might be about having mentors. It could involve using proper action learning. Um, And it could be having what I call regular collusion breaking sessions, where we meet up again, like a reunion after the course, and we hold each other to account for our actions. And we check, have they diluted? Have they reverted and faded back? And that's when as a trainer, it's brilliant if you can go in a few months later and a few months after and keep trying to bed in the action.
0: So you would actually do that in the training course. You would introduce this model. You would encourage people to come to create these action plans, but then also share them and hold themselves to account.
1: Exactly, and, and you know actions change over time. So in action learning, it's not it's not that you have to do what you said you'd do because the world might change. But you do have to honestly revisit. So if it's reverted and faded, has it reverted and faded for conscious reasons that you're in control of, or because we're back in the collusion of mediocrity again? In which case, we have to go back to level one and start naming it.
0: So, when you've introduced this model and you've been going through all of this, challenging people, etc., have you ever had particularly bad reactions to it?
1: So, I mean, I've, I've been thrown out, and, and what happens now at forty-eight is that a client will phone me up and go, "Oh, hello, we're we're interested in having some communications workshops. We know we've got some communications problems here." And what, if I'm an ethical person, what I have to be prepared to do is really dialogue honestly with uh, those people who are commissioning me and already start the process of trying to name what really needs to happen. And quite often that will frighten them off. Um, And they'll say, oh, they won't say because they don't get back to you because they've realized you're suggesting we might need to have an uncomfortable conversation in the room. And what they were actually saying was we just want to tick off another away day or we want to bung these people on another leadership course or a personal development program to say we've done it and get our investors in people award. But what we secretly hope is that it won't actually change very much. And I'm not prepared to collude with that. So it's involved as a trainer being prepared to walk away from paid work. It involves being um, prepared to name it during the contract and walk away then as well. It sounds like I'm being really arsey and difficult. Quite often this can be done very positively and respectfully, particularly if you've got buy-in to this concept from the start.
0: What about actually in the training room itself when you're introducing these ideas and challenging people
1: in this way? Do you know one of the best examples of it I saw was actually not myself but a colleague of mine uh, based at Brighton University and we were doing some work with a security company and the senior manager was in amongst all his middle managers and they were on this change management program and there was a lot of piss taking going on and not doing things seriously between several of them and uh, the trainer who I know very well suddenly got up at 10 o'clock this was on a Saturday got up about 10 o'clock and said I'm off and the the senior manager. said, What do you mean you're off? He said, "I'm taking my ball away. Um, you know, I don't need to be here. I'm away from my family today. We've I've contracted with you to help you, and he said what the goals were. And you're all not, or several of you, are just completely undermining this. I'm off. And he started to walk out the door, picked up his stuff, and he was um, heading off down the car park. And the the gobsmacked senior manager went, "You can't do that. We're paying you for this." And he said, "You're not paying me for this. You're paying me to do authentic, proper learning." Anyway, he started to get into his car. There was a quick crisis meeting between all of them. They told the senior manager they didn't really want him there. He didn't need to be part of that learning. He finally got it because he was in a panic because he didn't want the rest of the board to hear what had happened. He went across to the car as it was revving up, apologized, and that course absolutely was transformed in that moment. The guy came back into the room, and the learners, absolutely, it was one of the most significant bits of learning they ever did. But he had to be prepared to name it and break that collusion.
0: And what kind of advice would you give people listening to this that may be you know, inspired to try and use this model? Because it sounds like something you've got to be fairly careful with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, there's quite a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm not a plug for the website, but I've written up a lot about this, about how you do this skillfully. Um, and I think the place to start is before you're even even in the room is that you really need to have a real conversation with the sponsor. And it has to be really clear that the reason why you're prepared to do the work is because you can do this honestly and authentically. And your role in the room is to be the flag waver of the potential, not the flag waver of the mediocrity. So it's before you're in the room. You have to do all the stuff you do around ground rules, but you have to be careful that the ground rules you set aren't actually embedding a collusion of mediocrity so yes we want ground rules of trust and openness but you have to be careful if you start talking about you know no criticism or you call it constructive criticism um i i personally believe what you need to do is create lots of trust but have honest conversations and that will involve people saying uncomfortable things um, and I think what you have to do is create a safe space to be dangerous, and you know that's not easy to do. It just comes with practice, and you'll get it wrong sometimes, and that's part of it too. Colluders uh, play it safe because they never want to get it wrong.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: Yeah, it's almost like a footnote really, and it was just that I was giving a talk on the collusion of mediocrity a few years back, and somebody in the audience put their hand up and you know did a bit of collusion breaking on me. And this person um, in the audience put their hand up and said to me, uh, but Paul, and they're doing a bit of collusion breaking of their own, um, isn't mediocrity important and vital? Isn't it so part of the human condition that you're sounding a bit relentless? And, and that really made me think. And that is where um, I think learning and development is now. That is where the absolute skill is. The skill of a facilitator is the skill of discernment to really help an organization get to their potential but to make sure that when when I mean mediocrity is where we don't just go madly for excellence all the time because it's too dangerous uncomfortable and difficult is that that's a conscious decision that we know what we're doing and so my footnote is collusion breaking always works when it's conscious and it can be damaging and dangerous when it isn't
0: Okay, well, thanks very much for that, Paul. I think that's been really, really interesting, and there's quite a lot to think about, and I'm certainly going to read um, your website. Do you want to tell everyone the URL and everything else about yourself? Yeah,
1: I guess um, I've been a writer all my life. I've tended to document all of this stuff and written stories about it. So on rationalmadness.wordpress.com, which is the place where... All my writings are, you'll notice um, on the right-hand side something called The Collusion of Mediocrity ebook. And it's a kind of living document, a diary, where I've written up some of my practice, some of the ideas, some of the techniques, some of the ways of doing it. And it's all open source, and I encourage everyone to to use that. And and please get in touch with me and add some of your own thoughts and stories to it.
0: And thank you very much for your time, Paul. Thanks, John. Well, there we go, the first in a re-released Essentials Mix podcast, The Collusion of Mediocrity, Something that I've found really useful and helpful in how I do my job, both in the facilitation room, but also in the more consultant side of the role. Thanks very much to Paul Levy. He's been ill recently, so I hope you're feeling much better, Paul, in the unlikely event that you're listening to this. And thanks for listening. I have no idea when there'll be a new podcast, but there will be at some point. This is not ending. It's just becoming more random.